Good morning again. Uh, It's great to be worshiping with you this morning, and as always, it's a privilege and a joy to be able to proclaim God's Word to you. If uh, you are just visiting with us, or if you haven't been here the last few weeks, we've been preaching through the New Testament letter of 1 Peter for the last several weeks. This week, we come to a bit of a transition point in the letter of 1 Peter. He began in the very first verse telling us that Christians are elect exiles, chosen and beloved in the sight of God, but foreigners and aliens to the world around us. Peter then spent the next several sections of the letter talking about our identity as God's children. That led to his call to holy living, loving one another in the church, and our realization that we're not simply individual children of God, but he calls us living stones, which God has joined to each other and is building up into a spiritual house. If you notice, most all of these talk about our relationship to God, that we are elect, that we are chosen, that we are beloved in his sight. Peter's given clear teaching on what our identity is as Christians, as members of Christ's church. In our passage today, Peter begins to transition to what seems like the occasion for the letter that he's written. The Christians he's writing to are suffering because they are different from the pagan world around them. So in this section, God is going to begin to tell us how we are to live among the unbelieving world around us. In verse 11, we see him repeat the theme of holiness that he's already given us. He tells us again to live holy lives, to kill our sin because it is trying to kill us. And then in verse 12, he tells us why. He says that our holiness lived out in the midst of the unbelieving world is actually meant to draw people to Christ. It's an aspect of evangelism and mission. So today we're going to see that God calls us to kill our own sin with the goal of converting the unbelievers around us. Before we come to this text and ruminate on it, would you pray with me and ask God's blessing on his word? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know your son Jesus Christ better. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear your word, believe it, and obey it. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're just going to read verses 11 and 12. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. So we look at this text today, we're going to see three things. First, in verse 11, we're going to see that we are called to wage war on our sin. And then Peter tells us the context in which we are waging war, that we are to do so among unbelievers at the beginning of verse 12. And then in the second half of verse 12, he tells us why. 
He tells us that this act of waging war against our sin among unbelievers is with the hope that it would cause them to glorify God on the day that Christ returns. So Peter starts in verse 11 with a command, but the command is nested in between two reminders for us of things that he has already told us. First, verse 11 begins with, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Peter's reminding us of our identity. He begins with the word beloved. It could be that Peter is telling these readers how much he loves them. But based on all the things that Peter has said before this about how we are precious in God's sight, it's much more likely that Peter is talking about how we are viewed by God. This is your identity as a Christian. Your name is beloved just as your name, because you're joined with Christ, is Christian. Peter is drawing on all that he has just said in the previous verses about our identity as the church. We are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, those who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are elect, chosen, precious in the sight of God, beloved. But on the other side of that identity, Peter gives us, Two other words, sojourners and exiles. This is a reminder of who we are in relation to the society around us. As we talked about that first week, when you were born again to new life, you became alienated, estranged from the world around you. You became exiles. You were given a new citizenship, a new set of values, a new family, and all of those things separate you from the unbelieving world around you. You do not belong to this culture. You are sojourners and exiles. Peter reminds us first, before he commands us, of our dual identity in Christ. So this is what he says in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You see the command, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. But Peter puts another reminder on the tail end of that command, and it's a reminder to us of what sin is and what sin does. He says those passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. Peter told us in chapter 1, verse 18, that sin is slavery, Sin promises pleasure and freedom and joy, but Peter tells you here that when you reach out to take it, instead of giving you the joy it promises you, sin wages war on your soul. It fights against you. It tries to kill you. Peter refers to sin here as the passions of the flesh. This is a reminder to us that sin is not just what we do. It is something in our hearts. It's something that we long for. It's our desires, our passions. And so the question you might be asking is, which passions, which desires, what are those desires in me that wage war against my soul? Well, Paul uses this same phrase in Galatians 5, and here's the list he gives of those desires or those passions that wage war against your soul. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, 
fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Put this list together with what Peter has just said in verse 11. Sexual immorality is where he starts. That's the whole gamut of sexual sin. That's pornography, lust, adultery, homosexuality, sex outside of marriage. Those things promise pleasure and freedom. And we know that there is a risk that we would hurt our family or our spouse or disappoint our parents. But God says that's not the worst of it. Those sins are trying to kill you. They're trying to destroy you. Remember, Peter says in chapter 5, verse 8, that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's not trying to get you to loosen up and enjoy yourself. He is trying to devour you. That's true of all the sins in the list, not just sexual immorality. Enmity and strife with other people will destroy you. Fits of anger don't just cause harm to others, they cause harm to you and your soul. Envy and jealousy, the kind that is kindled as you scroll through Instagram or as you mindlessly search Amazon, those things cause harm to your soul. Your sin does not just harm others, it harms you. And you may be thinking, but Mitchell, I'm a Christian. Don't we believe in the perseverance of the saints? Isn't that what Ron talked about in CE last week? That someone who has been forgiven and regenerated will continue in faith to the end. Yes, we absolutely do. Jesus says in John 6, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But if you were in Ron's CE class last week, you heard him read the third paragraph in chapter 17 of the Westminster Confession. This is what it says about how the saints, Christians, will persevere in the faith. Nevertheless, true Christians may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, fall into grievous sins and for a time continue in them, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit. They come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts. They have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded. They hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. We don't believe in a static, once you're saved, sin can't touch you kind of thing. We believe in a dynamic fight with sin in the strength of the Holy Spirit. We believe that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ, but also that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, which is why Peter looks at these sins and commands us to wage war on them. He says, I urge you to abstain from them. In other words, fight back. Sin is fighting against you. Fight back against it. As the Puritan John Owen says in his book, The Mortification of Sin, always be killing sin or it will be killing you. Brothers and sisters, do not become comfortable and cozy with your sin. We read in the last chapter that Jesus has redeemed us from our sin. 
If you are a Christian, sin is no longer your slave master. You have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. As Peter tells us later in chapter 2, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Every last one of your sins, Christian, has been paid for. They no longer stand over you in condemnation. But as Christians, we must remember what the second half of that verse says. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You are not abstaining from your sin to earn the favor of God. You are not fighting your sin to avoid eternal judgment. Both of those things, hear this, both of those things are accomplished only by faith in Christ. That is the only thing that can accomplish peace with God and removing eternal judgment from us, trusting in Jesus Christ. But you are fighting your sin because Jesus has paid for it. He has given you new life. He's made righteous life possible for you by cleansing you of your sins and filling you with His Holy Spirit. Beloved, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Fight to put away the old and put on the new. That's Peter's call to holiness for us. He's already commanded that we be holy as the Lord is holy. And here he tells us again to abstain from the passions of our flesh, which wage war against our souls. But I want you to notice that here, as opposed to chapter 1, Peter has a different context in mind for that holiness. At the beginning of verse 12, he makes a positive statement about this holiness. He says, keep your conduct honorable, but notice where we are to keep our conduct honorable. Among the Gentiles. By Gentiles, Peter doesn't mean non-Jews, as it meant in the Old Testament. He's just gotten done referring to the church with terms that were given to Israel. You're a chosen race. You're a holy nation. And so he's using the term Gentile to refer to those outside the church. Where is it that you should keep your conduct honorable? Where is it that you should be sure you are killing your sin and living a holy life? Among the unbelievers around you. In one way, this is just another reminder that we are foreigners and exiles in this world. But in another way, Peter is echoing the words of Jesus in John 17. In John 17, Jesus is praying to his Father, and in the back half of that chapter, he begins praying about all Christians who will come after him. This is what he says. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus acknowledges that his people are not of this world. We are exiles. Our citizenship is in heaven. However, he explicitly prays to the Father that he would not take us out of the world. Why? Because he has sent us into the world. We are exiles in this world, but our job is not to hang tight and lay low until Jesus comes back. It's true that in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul tells us to live quietly and mind our own affairs, 
But notice what he follows that up with. So that you may walk properly before outsiders. Christian, you are called to live in the world. You do not have the option of avoiding non-Christians until Jesus comes back. Sometimes we think of avoiding unbelievers because we think that will protect us and keep us holy. But your holiness is not just for you. Jesus has sent you into the world. You are commanded to conduct your life among unbelievers. These may be neighbors, co-workers, bosses, family members even, fellow citizens, volleyball teammates. The key is that you are to be interacting with and living amongst unbelievers. And what is assumed in the text is that you're not just brushing past them at the grocery store. You are in close enough conduct, contact that they can actually see and assess your conduct, the way that you live your life. Does that describe your life? Do unbelievers know you and you know them? Jesus spent so much time fellowshipping with unbelievers that he was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. One of the biblical qualifications to be an elder is that the man must be well thought of by outsiders. We value very much the fellowship of the saints and the family of the church, but valuing those things is not an excuse to avoid close contact with those who do not know Jesus. Peter commands that we live honorable lives among unbelievers. I want you to notice also what Peter doesn't say about unbelievers, and it's actually quite shocking given the context that Peter is writing in. We're told in verse 11 that there is a war going on and that we need to fight in it. Peter does not say that the war is with the Gentiles and the outsiders. Instead, he says that our war, our battle, our fight is with our own sin. This is very easy for us in the church to get backwards. Are there people in the world who are doing evil things? Absolutely. Peter's going to look at those more closely throughout the rest of the letter. Does God acknowledge that there are enemies of his people? Even what Kim just prayed about, that there are those who are persecuting his church. Yes, absolutely. Did Jesus have harsh words for false teachers and those who led others astray? He did. But we must never imagine that the battle we are fighting is with the world or the culture or some political party or organization. The battle you are called to fight is primarily with your own sin. Listen to what Pastor John Piper says about this war in the Christian life. He says there is a mean, violent streak to the true Christian life. Now let's very carefully ask, violence against whom or what? Not other people, not Muslims, not Hindus, not Buddhists, not atheists, not secularists, not nominal Christians, not wives or husbands or children or ornery bosses, but violence on every impulse in our soul to be violent to other people. It is a violence against all lust in ourselves, all enslaving desires for food, alcohol, pornography, money, the praise of man, 
approval of others, power, fame. This is our enemy. This is where we make war. What John Piper is saying in that quote and what Peter is saying in our text is that our primary enemy is not other people. It's not the Gentiles or the unbelievers around us. It's not those people who voted differently than you or the ones trying to push evil and ungodly things in the world. Christian, your primary enemy, the object of your violence and your war, is your own sin. You are called to hate your sin, not to hate others. Do you have the same hatred for your own sin that you have for the sins of others? This is what Peter and God are calling us to in this text. We're told to fight primarily our own sin, not the world around us. And our holy living is done in the context of that unbelieving world. We are to kill sin and live honorable lives among the Gentiles. But why? Peter has not given us a reason yet. He tells us in the second half of verse 12. This is what he says in the whole verse. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The reason we are to live holy lives in and amongst the unbelieving world is because doing so will cause some to see our good deeds and glorify God on the day that Jesus returns. Peter is saying that our holiness will cause people who don't know Jesus to trust in Him and worship Him on the day He returns. That's the hope, that unbelievers would glorify God. Peter's not talking about some generic glorifying of God. He's talking about conversion. He's talking about a changed heart. He's talking about worshiping idols and worshiping other things and turning from those and worshiping God as all Christians have done. Notice that these people are hostile to Christianity. They speak against Christians as evildoers. And when they see the honorable conduct of Christians... Over the course of time, they end up trusting in Jesus. This means that on the day of visitation, the day Jesus returns in both salvation and judgment, because they have come to know Jesus, they will not be standing under His judgment, but instead will be rejoicing that they are included in His salvation. This is a different way of looking at our own holiness. We know that evangelism involves words and persuasion. We know that it involves prayer. But Peter is telling us that evangelism also involves holy living. In the Christian world today, there are people who care a lot about holy living and abstaining from sin. And then there are people who care a lot about their neighbors and the society they live in. It's somewhat rare to find Christians who care a lot about both of those things. What Peter is saying here is that you must care about both. Holy living and loving your neighbor. Holy living is not just for you. God intended it to be for the good of your unbelieving neighbor as well. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 5, right after the Beatitudes. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But it's also true that if you care about your neighbors and your co-workers and your friends or classmates who aren't Christians, you should care about killing your own sin. That is one of the ways that God will bring about their conversion. Not by seeing some fake, squeaky clean image that you want to present to them, but by seeing true, real holiness and righteousness at work in your life. If you care about your neighbor, you will fight your sin and live in righteousness. Which one of those two groups do you most often find yourself in? Do you excuse yourself for living a worldly life because you're trying to be relevant to the non-Christians whom you love? Or are you more likely to live a cooped-up, secluded life, holiness hidden under a basket, without any care for your unbelieving neighbors? Peter tells us that those two things should never be at odds with one another. When you read verse 12, the word honorable sticks out. How do I know if my conduct is honorable? It says that unbelievers will see our good deeds. How do we know which deeds are good? Is this saying that we should try to do the kinds of good deeds that the world around us accepts, that they consider honorable, so that they might like Christianity more? That's one way that you might take these words. We actually know from the rest of the text of 1 Peter that this couldn't be the case because of how much the world around these Christians disapproves of what they are doing. In chapter 2, verse 20, Peter talks about a slave doing good and being beaten for it. In chapter 3, verse 14, he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And chapter 4, verse 4 says that unbelievers are surprised when you don't join them in the debauchery or sin that they are living in. So they malign you or mock you. If you let the response of the culture around you be your barometer for whether or not you are living a righteous and honorable life, you will very quickly give up on doing good and join them in their sin. You should not expect the world to praise you for following Jesus. In fact, the desire for everyone around you to praise you for the good life that you're living is one of those passions of the flesh that we are called to kill. It's called the praise of man or the fear of man. We are to put that to death. Instead, good deeds, honorable conduct, is conduct and good deeds that adhere to God's law. Chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession of Faith is about good works. This is what it says in the very first paragraph where it defines good works. Good works are only those that God has commanded in his holy word and not those that are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intention. We don't let the world around us tell us what righteousness looks like. We listen to the voice of God and obey Him. However, we need to be careful here. 
We talked in a previous week about the fact that holiness in the Bible focuses on God. We don't look at the world around us and try to be different from them and call that holiness. Instead, we look at Jesus and follow in His footsteps. That's how we pursue holiness, with our eyes fixed on Him, not fixed on the actions of the world around us. This means that there may actually be times and will be times where our good deeds are praised by the world, depending on what culture and what time we live in. Courage is a Christian virtue. It was also praised in ancient Greek culture as a virtue. A good work ethic follows God's commands and puts to death the sin of laziness. And a good work ethic is often praised in our culture. Taking care of the poor and the widow, maintaining self-control in our lives, being faithful friends, forgiving our enemies, these are all things that are sometimes praised by non-Christians. Don't assume that that is a negative thing. Our call is not to stare at the culture and do the things that they, and stop doing the things that they praise us for doing. We shouldn't live righteous lives and then as soon as the culture begins praising it, stop doing righteousness. We are called to fix our eyes upon God and upon His Word and follow in the footsteps of Jesus regardless of how those outside respond to us. We are to trust God that He will care for us and that He will convert our neighbors in the midst of our righteous living. Verse 12 ends with the fact that these people will glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the day of Jesus' return. This is a subtle call from Peter to patience. It may be that right now your adult child hates you for being a Christian. It may be that your friends at school mock you for your beliefs. It may be that your coworkers look down on you for your backwoods Christianity. The text doesn't say that after a week of holy living, they will glorify God. It doesn't say that one conversation with your neighbor will convert them. It says that our hope is to see them glorify God on the day that Jesus returns. Have patience. God is calling you to patient, faithful perseverance in holiness for the sake of your loved ones and your neighbors. He's also calling you to patient trust in Him to work in them and bring about the new birth that we pray and long for. As you wait, you have been called to die to sin and live to righteousness. You have been called to do that in a hostile world where you are sojourners and exiles. And you've been called to do it so that those who currently hate you and mock you might come to know the one who was hated and mocked for our sins. Beloved, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Would you all pray with me? Father, we are so weak and fickle. We pray that you would strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. We pray for hope, that you would remind us that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, that you have filled us with the all-powerful strength of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would soften our hearts toward our neighbors, 
that we would love those who hate us and hate you, and that you would work in them, that they would come to know the hope and the forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.